welcome to episode 49 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How you doing? I am doing great, and the reason I'm doing great is because we are back at it again with EFS. Man, it just does not stop. Yo, TikTok, EFS does not stop. So we did an episode a couple ago on the controversy of the eternal functional subordination, or my more favorite acronym, or I guess an acronym, is, can we call it EROS? EROS, yeah. It's ERAS like sounds like a rapper, but eternal relations of authority and submission. And so we basically spoke about how this was kind of a burgeoning, or it was like at least a couple of months ago, burgeoning controversy. And we wanted to kind of bring it back up, bring it back to light, talk about how it implicates all kinds of different decision-making and how we understand things in our, our course of life, in our relationship with each other, especially with the genders. And basically the summation or the summary that we came to was ESS basically is, or EFS or ESS or E-R-A-S is teaching, it's using the human relationship of the father and the son as a model for the relationship between God, the father and God, the son. And so it teaches that the son, because he's a son, submits to the father from all eternity and for all eternity. Does that make sense? It does. So we got so much great feedback from lots of people about this episode because while it's probably not in the lay conversation, it definitely should be. And you should definitely go back and listen to that episode because I, I think, Tony, you were gold on that episode. I try. I get I get worked up. Maybe I just need to get angry more often. Maybe I'm like the theological Hulk. I need to get angry. <laughs> and then when I get angry, I get like good at theology. Yeah, people love, like, interesting you chose Hulk. I was kind of thinking Popeye. Really? Well, I mean, more like in the sense, like, what's your theological spinach? I don't know. The Trinity, I guess. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think when we get subjects on the topic of any kind of subject around the Trinity, you're just all over that. And then you become Popeye and Brutus is the EFS controversy. (laughs) Brutus is like Wayne Grudem, apparently. Yeah, exactly. You heard it here first. So we got all kinds of great questions, which we're super thankful for. We got voicemails, we got emails, and a lot of the questions centered on kind of common themes. And so one in particular was a question that was posed by a couple people, particularly Jim and Devin, who both left emails and voicemails, which were killer. And I say we just get into some of their questions and go at it. How do you feel about that? Sounds great. Let's do it. Yeah, here we go. So both of them and many others centered on this idea where we're speaking about the will, the will of God and the will of Jesus. And they both honed in on a particular passage, two actually from Matthew 26 and Luke 22, where we have the scene in the garden. And Jesus is praying and he says those very famous words, not my will, but yours be done. So they ask this question of how do we reconcile the fact that it seems like we're speaking about two wills here and it seems to imply some kind of like ontological or natural submission. So what are your thoughts? How do we reconcile that? Yeah. So um, as we we mentioned with the EFS advocates is that they take um, economic or um, sort of redemption history realities and they push them back into the eternal reality, the ad interreality of the Trinity. And uh, there is economic um, 
revelation, economic um, accommodated revelation that happens prior to the incarnation. And then there's a a different thing that happens after the incarnation that we didn't, we didn't actually talk about uh, on the, the episode. And what happens is in the incarnation, the son takes on a second nature. So if you go back and listen to um, the episode we did on um, the hypostatic union, which is called, uh, well, the names are going to be changing. Uh, I'll link in the episode. I think it was episode 19 for some reason that number sticks out to me, but I'll, I'll put a link in the uh, show notes. But the hypostatic union is what we uh, what theologians call the incarnation. And the reason that they do that is because in the one hypostasis or one person of the Son subsists two natures. And so there's the divine nature that the Son uh, eternally shared with the Father, the single divine nature that the Son shared with the Father and the Spirit. And then there's the human nature that he adds to himself in the incarnation. And now there's some some kind of complex philosophical reasons, but the, the concept of a will, um, you can either root that in the nature of a person or you can root that in their personhood itself. And um, classically speaking, um, theologians have rooted that in the nature of a person. And so the father, son, and spirit share a single will because the will comes from the divine nature or the will is, um, is a component or I suppose a component is not the right term is an aspect of the divine nature. So when the son takes on a second nature in the incarnation, he also takes on a human will. And that's important because if you go back to the episode where we talked about, um, how Jesus did miracles, um, if there's any part of uh, a human nature that the son does not take on, then that part of the human nature is not redeemed. And when we're talking about a will, that's a major problem because our will is actually the driving factor that causes us to sin. So if our will is not redeemed and restored and healed and all of all of the things that happen when Christ takes on that nature, then we are lost in our sins because even if he pays for our sins, even if he accomplishes redemption, then we will still continue to sin in a way that separates us from the, from the son. Um, so that, that salvation cannot be complete unless he took on a human will as well. So in the garden, um, what we have is we have, there's the eternal divine will, which the father and the son share, and then there's, and the spirit. And then there's also the human will of the son, which is what he is talking about. So if you remember when we had the episode about Jesus not being a superhero, um, we talked about the fact that almost everything we see, and I think probably everything we see of the son after the incarnation is according to his human nature. He's a human praying to the father, according to his human nature, the same way that you and I would, he does enjoy a special covenant relationship that you and I, apart from the work of Christ cannot enjoy because of our sin. But it's still a, a fundamentally human relationship with the father. And so he is taking his human will and he's saying, I am not going to assert my human will, but I'm going to submit my human will to the father's will, which in a, in a sort of a paradoxical sense, he's submitting his human will to his divine will. And it's not to say that those wills were ever at odds or in conflict with each other in terms of um, a real conflict. But there was a hypothetical conflict that that could have happened where the son as a person, as a human, could have said, I refuse to go to the cross. That was within his possible range of options. Because he had a second will, he could have theoretically chosen a different option. Um, right. 
He never would have because he's God and he is obedient to the Father's will. But he could have chosen another option. So sometimes I think we read this passage as though like the son comes into the garden and he's saying, I don't want to go to the cross. I'm not going to go to the cross. And then he goes and prays and like the Holy Spirit works on his heart. And he says, you know what? It's better to do the Father's will than what I was going to do. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Right. right. We know, I mean, in I think it's I think it's Luke's gospel where it complete it like reiterates again and again and again that the son set his face towards Jerusalem. He had to go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem and die. There's never a point where the son wavers in that goal. And so we shouldn't read this one passage in uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane or, or the cry of dereliction on the cross for that matter. We shouldn't read that as some sort of like Christ was having second thoughts or Christ wasn't sure of what he was going to be doing because that's just not what the Bible teaches. But instead, this is the son going to the father as a human and saying, my desire and my meat is to do your will. And so even though if there was another way, I would choose that other way. My my primary will is for your will to be done rather than what I might desire otherwise. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So like in thinking about this particular question, this is still a discussion over who God is versus what God does and how he does it. Right. So I've been thoroughly convicted and convinced that when we're speaking of Christ, especially in the garden, we're getting a sense of his really full condescension. Because if we collapse all these wills into some kind of like weird amalgamation, then we're failing to understand that, like you said, what we needed most was to be regenerated in the will. And if Christ, if Jesus, as the son of God, does not experience that, is not in tune with that in the way that we are, then it's untouched, as it were, in terms of his redemptive work. So this is still Jesus volitionally yielding to God in work. This is not a question that in that whole instance, all the prayers, like you said, is, is not an instance of speaking about his identity or natural conscription or, again, like the ontological origination of who he is. It's speaking about the work that he's doing. And we here we have Christ, like you said, submitting himself, because that's the language we have, in such a way where he is going to go forward with what the Father wants, because that's exactly what he wants as well. But it's what he wants in his human nature, because now my hands are moving a lot. It Because he is coming under, the he has the full measure of the Holy Spirit. So if he's going to be our federal head, then even what we experience by way of our nature, trying to understand these difference of wills is, is somewhat derivative, if I can say it that way. But here we have Christ, who is the second Adam, the federal head, meant in every way as man was supposed to be in his experience and his connectivity with God the Father through the Holy Spirit. And so I, I like what you said, because I've often thought when I read that passage, when, when Jesus says like, you know, not my will, but yours be done. Like, what was really the alternative? Like, are we actually thinking that Jesus had like a plan B? Like, I was just going to go home and chill. Right. And, and do some more preaching. And I mean, he never, I don't even think that was, that was something that was, was in his mind, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're going to talk, um, I, I think we're going to talk about the passage in John in a few minutes. But w- what you'll find is that if you want to interpret these passages the way that the EFS advocate um, says that you have to, then you have to have some sort of ulterior motive in the sun that he um, kind of reverses course on. Exactly. So, and, and that just doesn't, it just doesn't 
line up with biblical data. So it's important to say that um, there's a difference between how we understand the economic revelation prior to the incarnation in terms of what 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 rightfully appears like submission. Um, I want to grant that to the eternal to the EFS advocate that it sure looks like submission, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. What what we do with that? It really does look like submission. The language sounds like submission. So that's one thing. But when we get to the incarnation, we actually have a genuine submission in the full sense of what I described on the last show of a full, um, a initial, even if hypothetical conflict between the wills, the two wills. So there's a plurality of wills. And then the resolution of that conflict, even if it's hypothetical, the resolution of that conflict um, by the acquiescence of one will to another. That's what submission is, is the resolution of conflict by the acquiescence of one will to another. Right. That's a I mean, there's a lot of like philosophical jargon in there, but that's what it is. One person wants one thing. Another person wants another thing. And one of the persons says, I'm going to forgo my desire in order to preserve the, the harmony in this relationship. That's submission. Right. So when we get into the incarnation, that actually happens. So um, it's a good desire and a good will for humans to desire to continue to live. That's a good, godly and holy thing. Right. Life is life is sacred. And so for the son to come into the garden and say, if there is any other way, I mean, you can get into a whole other Christological question about whether or not the son knew whether there was some other way or not. Uh, But that aside, the son comes into the garden and says, my human will would desire that I do not die because that's a good godly desire. And so if it's a if it's a good godly desire, then the son must have had it. But rather than enforce, rather than try to to grasp that and hold on to that desire, he said, "My my desire instead is to obey the Father's will." Right. So he he submits genuinely submits to the Father's will in a way that wasn't possible before the incarnation, um, which is another reason the incarnation was important is because the Son couldn't submit to the Father's will in eternity past. It wasn't wasn't metaphysically possible, and so there's no way he could show us how to submit to the Father's will or to submit to the Father's will on our behalf unless he took on a second nature and then in that nature or according to the nature submitted to the Father. Right. So in my opinion, far from supporting an EFS position, what this actually shows me is how gracious of God the Father to give us this conversation, which is intensely personal between the Father and the Son, right. and to show us that this will is going to be transformed and changed, and that it is an actual will. It is an actual submission in the sense that we're talking about Jesus's human will and capacity there. But to have that conversation right. displayed for us and then put forward for all of eternity in in future, so to speak, for us to be able to look at that and to see here is our savior. So that when we get to Hebrews and we see like there here is a high priest who is like us in every way but did not sin was tempted, then we can actually point back to the garden and say, Yeah, that's like legit. That's for real. Yeah. He's not he's not just saying that because it sounds good and Jesus stubbed his toe once and so he understands what pain is like. But we're talking about like at the root at who we are, at the place in our minds where decisions are adjudicated and we suffer and we struggle with coming under the authority of God to be obedient, we see here was Jesus. He was like us. He did it right. Exactly. And we see all that played out. So that's the beauty where I don't think it shows that, if, if you interpret it rightly, as the scripture would have us to understand, that we're not saying, well, there was a hierarchy of ontological identity that always existed. No, no, no. We wouldn't we expect to see this conversation actually play out if Jesus said he was who who he said he was? Exactly, exactly. 
So yeah, so it's it's be- sorry, I wasn't sure if you were going to answer my question or if you're just going to say yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it really is. I mean, one of the things that I think the EFS advocate can't So if I were to step out of my my current position and then put on the hat of being an EFS advocate and how they understand this passage, they're saying that this is not the human will of the sun, right. that this is the divine will of the sun that he is he is acquiescing to the father. Well, that doesn't make any sense unless you have multiple wills, which I didn't know this at the time of recording last week, but Wayne Grudem actually has said in print things that indicate that he believes there are multiple wills in the Trinity. So that's a whole different element. But um, they want to somehow say that the single will of the son that he shares with the father is represented in this passage, that somehow the son willing as the son is submitting that willing of that willingness to the father's will, but it gets all messy because it's a single will. So none of that can make sense. And so, you know, one of the things that struck me just now is the son's will, the son's human will is eternally distinct and in some ways separate from the father's will. And it doesn't get absorbed into the father's will. That's right. Buddhism, right? Exactly. That's, exactly. that's the, that's the individual losing their personhood as he merges with the, the, the oneness of, of the universe or losing themselves, right? Different kind of Nirvana concepts. And in the same way, my will as, as much as I believe it will be fully in harmony, fully in line with the, the father's will and with the son's divine will and the spirit's will, I, I, will always have a will of my own. It will always be my will that will be separate from your will and separate from the Father's will. But someday, by God's grace, my will will be completely unified with the Father's will. Right. Just as the Son's will was fully unified with the Father's will and is displayed in the in the garden account. So there's something really beautiful to that that we have to we have to grasp because that's part of our salvation is that we'll no longer be opposed to the to the Father. We will always be saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And I, I mean, I can't think of anything more gracious and beautiful than that. No, that's glorious. I mean, that uh, to me is kind of the point of that whole exchange is that's, I think, what we as maturing Christians, as Reformed people maybe in particular, that is the place that we want to go. That is the promised land for us is we want to be in that situation where we can say that kind of thing and actually mean it and then follow yeah. through with it. So to see our Savior wrestle in the same way and then to be the champion for us, to be the great advocate in that particular place is, yeah, glorious. Like, I, I don't know how else to say it. I'm, I mean, that's kind of like a really heavy thought. And what makes me sad is if we use the EFS controversy or that kind of those advocating that position, just kind of smuggle that right out. And we end up with a lot less of an understanding of what it means for Jesus to be so condescending and also just to fight for us when it comes to will, because that you're yeah. right. Like that's the center of who we are. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, we so what other some, questions yeah. did we have? So at least two more. Here's one that I think was interesting. And this comes from um, Jim as well. And let me just read it to you. And this is a, great, a really great entry point because we, we use the word um, economic, which we're, we're basically using this situation to describe work. And we've used ontological, which we're also using to describe nature. So here's what he asks. I understand that those who propose EFS primarily use ontological language when discussing Christ's submission, but would it be an error to use economic language when trying to discuss complementarianism and a relationship to the Trinity? 
You have 10 seconds. Go. I have 10 seconds. So this actually, um, I had a conversation with Tyler who sent us an email and the email basically said, I'd love to chat on the phone. So I had a conversation with Tyler and this is something we talked a lot about is that um, the problem with using economic language to describe the ontological trinity is what we're actually doing then is we are, um, in many ways, it's a theology of glory, right? So in the Reformation, one of Luther's main insights was that we can either be theologians of glory or we can be theologians of the cross. And theologians of the cross look to God's work to understand who he is, where theologians of glory think that they can see past the work of God into the nature of God. And that that's not a good thing. So that's, that's one of the problems Luther identified. And so when we take the work of God, even, even if we're not talking about the cross, but the economic work of the persons of the Trinity as they work in and towards creation. And we think that somehow in some sort of bare sense that allows us to glimpse the divine nature and the way that the persons relate to themselves, um, not considering creation, then we are engaging in exactly the thing Luther was railing against. So that's one thought. The other thought is that um, the the way that EFS advocates use economic language, in my opinion, reveals a confusion between between what economic and ontological is in the first place. So let me use an example. Um, one of the common sort of venues of attack that you see with the EFS advocates is that they they take the language of begetting and they take the language of procession with the spirit. They take those, um, those hypostatic relations, which we talked about those, I think it was our Holy Spirit episode. Um, this is going to be like Linkapalooza on the show notes. Um, we talked about the procession of the Holy Spirit a lot in the Holy Spirit episode in our systematic theology. And we asked the question of how much of the um, the work or the activity of the Trinity in creation can we use to draw conclusions about the ontological Trinity? And the answer was almost nothing. Basically, basically the barest sense of um, some sort of relations between the three. So we can see that the son is begotten, but we don't really even know what that means. We can, we can see that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son, but we don't really know what that means. And so the language of begotten and proceeds is accommodated language. And what that means is that um, it's language that's used sort of as an analogy to help us understand something that we can't otherwise understand. And so that language doesn't tell us anything in terms of bare facts about the ontological trinity. It just helps us get a glimpse of something that's going on. And so um, just like in the Nicene Creed, it says the son is eternally begotten of the father. But it says begotten, not made. That clause is important because the the qualifier not made tells us that we're not talking about begottenness the way that we're talking about it when we're talking about humans. So Athanasius had the insight that when a, when a human father begets a human son, that human father had to exist chronologically prior in time to that son. Right. So his substance existed before the, uh, the son's substance, son, lowercase s, son. And so his insight was that when we say begotten, we're not talking about that kind of begetting. But there's still a there's still a continuity of some sort between what it means for the son to be begotten of the father and for a human son to be begotten of a human father. What the EFS advocate does is they take the accommodated language of submission in the economic activities of the Trinity. Right? The father sends the son into the world. That's an economic function 
um, prior to the incarnation or the father and son send the Holy Spirit together. That is a economic function. Well, sure, in in human terms, if I send um, my wife to the store to pick up some eggs, which would never happen because my wife sends me to the store to pick up eggs, but if in the bizarro world I sent my wife to the store to pick up some eggs, then you could say in a sense that she submitted her will to me in order to do that. So that language is used to describe what's going on with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the sending of the Spirit. But that's an accommodation. It's not, it's not actually what's happening because submission can't happen. So right. there's a presupposition that submission is not possible. And in order to um, overcome that presupposition, they basically say, well, submission is possible. And so they push that, they push that accommodated economic activity back into the ontological trinity and say, well, no, the son always is subordinate to the father economically. Well, uh, always subordinate economically ad intra doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. So when we're talking about economic function, there's no such thing as an economic function ad intra. Those are contradictory terms. So if it's ad intra, it's not economic. If it's ad extra, it's not ontological. So what's happening is there's a confusion of terms. And that's really important. So to, to answer the question in sort of a short form, it would not be inappropriate to describe ontological realities using uh, economic language because the only way that we can describe economic uh, ontological relationships is with economic language. Right. But we have to understand that when we're doing that, we're speaking by way of analogy, not by way of um, uh, like a forensic reality or like a... Um, I forgot the word. Not synthetic. Um, it just lost me. I have no What's idea. What's the opposite of synthetic? What's I don't know. The, I have no idea. Synthetic analytic, right? We're <laughs> oh, not analytic. speaking analytically. Right. So a synthetic statement, a synthetic statement is one where um, you add information. Right. An analytical statement is where you look at something and you simply describe it without adding information. Right. Correct. So we, when we speak of the father sending the son or when we speak of the father begetting the son we're making an an synthetic statement because we're adding accommodated language on top of what's what's actually happening we're describing it by adding accommodated language to it right. so it's a synthetic statement if somehow i was able to describe the uh what's going on in what we call begottenness if I was to describe that in bare terms somehow, that would be an analytical statement. But we can never make analytical statements about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit when we're talking about ad intra. Does that make sense? Yeah. Basically, this is an issue of we're talking about concepts and ideas that are high up, like level 100, if you will. And we yeah. got language that has an upper bounds of level two. Yeah, so the problem is about it. you can't start confusing the terms, the simplicity of the terms or the cognitive nature of the terms for the actual ideas and concepts that you're trying to express, which is why conversations like this are so helpful because it helps us to flesh right. those out rather than trying to synthesize something into, again, a synthetic statement where we know we're going to impart, we're going to smuggle in some stuff that we really shouldn't. And so we need to be careful about how, I guess, how, like, how forthrightly, how seriously we use those statements. I mean, it's probably, this is just a good question because it helps us to be more self-aware, but, but basically yeah. what you said, that all that stuff actually exists. Yeah. So, so basically, and I don't want to, I mean, like we said previously, Bruce Ware, Wayne Grudem, Owen Strand, we did get an email or a voicemail correcting us on our pronunciation. It's Owen Strand, not Owen Strachan. I don't know why it's Owen Strand. It's clearly spelled Strachan. I mean, that's just a super but slick way to pronounce that. I love that. It is. Owen Strand. Um, so 
what's what's happening these aren't stupid people so i this this example may sound like i'm saying they're stupid but they're i'm not saying that not even in an accommodated way um but what's what's going on is something similar to if i read a passage where it says that god saves his people with his strong right arm and i drew the conclusion that somehow ontologically in eternity past god actually had a strong right arm it's the same kind of thing that's going right on. exactly so begottenness or the sending of the son that's economic language it's accommodated language the same way that god's strong right hand or standing before his face or all of those anthropomorphisms or that he repented of his decision to crown samuel as king all of that is accommodated language that doesn't mean that somehow in the very nature of god there's a right arm and a face and wings and repentance like those things are not a feature of god's nature they're a feature of us understanding what he's doing in a way for us to sort of understand who he is in him in his nature and i don't think that's unfair to level that kind of criticism because who yeah. hasn't done that before it is mistaken something that was either meant to be anthropomorphic or is meant to be accommodative and turned it into some kind of like unequivocal truth about right. you know something in the scripture so this, I think, is a good challenge to all of us that we ought to be very careful at how we translate and, again, synthesize these concepts and ideas so that we don't end up creating error. Or at least we're involving ourselves in the life of the, the hermeneutical church so that we discuss these things. And, and by church, I'm talking like not just your local body, but the church writ large throughout all of time, especially going back into what we consider to be orthodoxy set forward by men who have studied much longer and much harder and much more intelligent than us because right. that's what keeps us from making this kind of error. Right. Yeah, so, absolutely. So here's another question that kind of wraps us all up. And, and this again was a common theme, but because we spoke about how the EFS controversy was really born out of this sense to understand complementarianism or at least defend it and to prevent some kind of hierarchical view of men and women where one was subject to the other, even as we talked about them being complementary to each other, because that was its origin, there was a lot of questions about, well, how would you guys approach and kind of advocate from the scriptures for a true and appropriate view of complementarianism? What do you think? Yeah, so I don't I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because this could be and probably will be at some point a show in itself. But the short answer is that God's um, God's identification of particular roles for men and women, it's not simple enough to say that it's entirely a feature of his decree. It's not arbitrary, but it's also not the case that it's rooted in some deep natural distinction and i mean natural in the sense of our very essence of who we are of our what we are can you please use the word ontological that'd make me feel ontological yeah it's not an ontological distinction (laughs) it's a distinction in terms of like natural capacities women tend to be uh, more nurturing than um, men for example and men tend to be able to handle certain features of criticism that are required for leadership better than women generally speaking Right. There are always outliers. That's not how statistical averages work. But um, the way that we defend it from the Bible, though, is we go to the clear pace places in Scripture where um, God makes it unambiguous that this is how it's going to be. Right. Right. So the the passages in Timothy where it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. 
That, I mean, that's pretty explicit. And it's true. It's absolutely true that he then roots that in the creation account. So there is a feature of men and women are different, and that's part of what is going on. But when we when we start to go back into the Trinity to defend that, that's when we've gone astray because the scripture nowhere does that. We're going to get to the the first Corinthians passage um, in a minute here, but the scripture nowhere says, oh, by the way, because the father submitted to the son, then the, then obviously women are submitted to men. Yeah, exactly. So the, the problem is that, um, you can do that the way that the EFS advocates have, but you're going beyond scripture. And I mentioned last time, like there was no need for them to do that. So when when the egalitarian comes and says, well, you're positing a difference between men and women in their very natures, rather than double down and say, yeah, I am. And look at the Trinity. Like, that's basically what they did. Um, or they incoherently said, well, no, I'm not. But look at the natures of the Trinity. Look at the different natures of the persons in the Trinity. That doesn't make any sense. Rather, they should have just gone to the scripture and said with and I'm not I'm not calling them cowards, but it would have taken courage that they did not exhibit and the time to do this rather than um, taking the tack they did it would have taken courage but they should have simply gone to the scriptures and said i i can't account for what you're saying i understand the force of your argument but it's clearly contradictory to what paul is doing in this passage right yeah and the same goes the same goes for relationships in the family right Paul clearly says that women are to submit to their own husbands and husbands are to sacrifice themselves for the good of their wives. So we have explicit statements in scripture that can stand on their own apart from any sort of systematizing. That doesn't mean they shouldn't be systematized, but they can stand alone. They don't need to have a a systematic undergirding because they simply stand the way they are. They're explicit enough for that. So rather than rather than taking other passages of scripture that aren't talking about this subject and then forcing them to talk about this subject, um, they should have just gone to the places where the scriptures do. Yeah. Stop trying to put square pegs around holes, people. Exactly. Come on, theologians. That's exactly where I go as well. And this has changed for me a little bit in terms of being married for a little while now. And that is whenever I think of complementarianism and how the Bible puts forward that concept, I immediately go, like you said, Tony, to Ephesians 5. So, and that is the passage where we're talking about marriage in the home. And so this is what I was trying to drive at last week, but I think probably didn't do so well. And that is, I've always perceived marriage as a dramatization of Christ's relationship with the church. And that's why Paul is saying there, this mystery is profound, right? Like what I'm saying refers to Christ in the church so that we don't get confused. Like what I'm saying is like relevant for marriage self-help books. That's why I'm telling you this. So like you should have good right. relationships with each other because won't it be cool when you understand that your relationship is, or, or Christ's relationship with the church is just like your marriage. Like that's getting yeah. it backwards, which is the problem. Exactly. And in this drama, the husband is taking his cues from Christ And the wife takes her cues from God's will for the church, which is why he splits it out, bifurcates it between husbands, love your wives, and why Christ gave himself for the church. So the primary responsibility for initiative and leadership in the home, as I see it from this passage, and where it feeds into complementarianism, is to come from the husband, who's taking his cues from Christ, the head. And it's clear that those are not about rights or power, but it's about responsibility and sacrifice. So husbands who are like exerting hubris, abuse, bossiness, like, I don't know, authoritarianism, just straight up arrogance. That's the problem because according to the scriptures, as Paul's laying it out, here is a man whose pride has been broken by his own need for a savior. And he's willing to bear the burden of leadership given to him by Jesus, no matter how heavy that load. 
And I'd like to think that godly women are going to see that and be glad, like be yeah. excited to have that kind of man so that they can complement each other appropriately. So I always look at the marriage in the home in particular as maybe not necessarily discreet, but certainly crazy instructive for right. how we understand the genders. And though many have said it before and we're saying it again, it's this idea of mutual volitional submission and yielding that we see with Jesus in the garden that makes complementarianism comport with the scriptures, but also illustrates that that is what leadership is like. Like anytime somebody says, well, I don't like complementarianism because it seems to create a hierarchy. I see in here in a sense a hierarchy, but it's also one that's undergirded, that's underpinned by humility and love, which is totally right. different than any kind of other worldview that tries to assimilate gender roles. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and just just to step back a second, that passage, everything in there is economic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Nothing well in that passage is an eternal reality of any sense. Well said. Right. So the the son takes his cues from the incarnate Christ in his economic work of sacrificing for the church. And the wife takes her cues in the created reality of the church as the church submits itself to Christ. Right. So that's entirely economic. Um, before we go to the first Corinthians passage, and I, I think we, we definitely need to get that in. We don't want to run out of time. But before we go there, a couple of questions that I got um, in conversations that weren't sent to us was I referenced Doug Wilson as a proponent of this view. Yes, you and did. I got lots of people that sent me to a um, to a blog where he basically said he is not an EFS advocate. And I want to be. um careful because Doug Wilson is a slippery, slippery person at times, right? So Doug Wilson, uh, most famous for, um, the, uh, the federal vision controversy, which is a whole different game, but recently came out with an article that said, well, I'm not a federal visionist ever anymore. I still agree with all of their tenants. I just don't call myself a federal visionist anymore. And so he did the same thing with eternal subordination. So I will link to the article in this show notes, but I just want to read a few parts here. He says, um, after describing, um, after describing Gruden's view, more or less, he says, where do I differ? The main thing I differ with is the use of the word subordination as part of the name for your position. This is a rhetorical point. Given that subordination is the name of one of the classic heresies concerning the Trinity, calling your position by a name involving this word root is simply inviting confusion. Having issued the invitation, we have gotten it. And then he goes on to say, um, important note, as I have argued for headship and submission in the past, he's talking about headship and submission between man and woman, I have used the word subordination with reference to the Godhead. I have meant nothing other than a divine obedience to divine authority that was fully consistent with the divine equality. Let me read that again. Nothing other than a divine obedience to divine authority that was fully consistent with the divine equality. I now think that the use of this particular word ought to be dropped in the interest of clarity and peace. So he then goes on in that same paragraph and says, but I don't think authority and obedience ad intra, the emphasis is his, ad intra should be dropped. I don't think it can be dropped. So he's saying that there's a divine obedience, presumably the son and the spirit have, to a divine authority, presumably that the father has, and that that's consistent with divine equality. 
Well, the problem with that is if we're reading the Athanasian Creed, we understand that if there's a divine obedience, there's only one divine obedience and all three of the persons have it. And if there's a divine authority, there's only one divine authority and all three of the persons have it. Right. So right there, he's off the rails. And then um, he goes on. Uh, let me find it quick. Uh, sort of towards the bottom of the article. He says, so fatherhood is ultimate and fatherhood is ad intra. The fatherhood of the father did not come into existence after the decision to create the world. It is not in any way dependent upon the decision to create the world. And so there should be no more difficulty in saying that the son is eternally obedient than there is in saying that he is eternally begotten. His existence is obedience, eternal obedience, obedience that could not be otherwise. The father's existence is authority. Well, Doug Wilson is actually probably smarter than uh, Wayne Grudem and uh, Bruce Ware. He's a sharper systematic theologian than either of them, in my opinion. But this is just a fundamental, like a freshman mistake. The word existence is literally how you translate the word usia. Right. So he's literally saying his usia is obedience, eternal obedience. The father's usia is authority. So he, he is so far, he's probably at least as far in the eternal functional subordination camp as Ware or Grudem is. So the people who want to say, no, he's not. Um, what I would caution you when you're reading Doug Wilson is he often uses words in equivocal ways in order to fit in with the camp he's writing to. So when he's writing to a group of people that doesn't affirm the federal vision, he's going to say, yeah, yeah, I, I don't affirm the federal vision. But then when he's writing to a group that does, he's saying, well, I don't like the words federal vision, right. but I still would sign the same agreement I signed X years ago, which I, I haven't disagreed with any of the positions I held. So we have to be careful. Um, I got that feedback from tons of people. That's interesting. The other, the other quick side note, I mentioned John Piper. I haven't been able to find anything explicit that is written by John Piper alone that affirms the eternal functional subordination of the son, but he was the co-author with Wayne Grudem on several books where the views espoused. So I think it's fair to say that in the absence of him saying, no, I didn't write that chapter and I wouldn't agree with it or, or something to that nature. I think it's fair to say that he does affirm the position. And I'm not aware of anywhere he's come out and explicitly said he doesn't. So I just wanted to get those out on the table before I forget, because that is a one of the things that we try really hard to do that I try really hard to do, not just on the show, but in general is accurately represent people. So if I misspoke and said such and such a person affirms a position and they don't, I want to make sure I clarify that. But in these cases, it's really clear, at least with Doug Wilson, it's really clear that uh, he does. So let's capstone this whole conversation by getting into first Corinthians 11. Let's and do it. Let me read a couple of verses for you. Then we can kind of chat through the implications of these, because these are going to feed back into some of the questions and also just give us really fertile ground to kind of, again, encapsulate this whole conversation. So first Corinthians 11, let me read a couple of verses after verse three, if that's okay with you, Tony. Sure. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Boom. <laughs> Episode over. Thanks for listening to the Reformed Brotherhood. <laughs>
until so, next time. So what do we think? Because this is really, you know, you and I were kind of chatting about this. This is kind of the go-to verse for a lot of what we've been talking about tonight. It and is. I think the best place to start, at least in my mind, because again, we want to deliver this for the layperson. Some of this already may just seem like you guys just spoke right over my head. And I don't even understand why I should even remotely care about this. So I, I think we should go back to, again, talking about essence, uh, nature, personhood. So let's start there. G- give me like your kind of summary of how that fits into what we're talking here. Sure. So when we're talking about essence or usia or nature um, or substance, right, we're talking about the fundamental um, metaphysical reality of what a given thing is. Right. So um, we're talking about a crass analogy, but if I have three clumps of Play-Doh and each of them is a different color, the fact that they're Play-Doh is the substance. Right. The right. fact that one's red and one is green, that's not a substance issue. I mean, if you want to get technical in chemistry terms, yeah, there's a difference in the chemical makeup. But the the reality of three clumps of Play-Doh is that they're all Play-Doh. Right. I have red Play-Doh, I have green Play-Doh, but they're still both Play-Doh. You're killing now, this analogy so far. Keep it going. Yes. So um, that's substance, right? The underlying metaphysical reality of what a thing is. Right. Now, the thing, the actual thing that's in front of you that you see, the actual instance, that's what, we, what we're talking about when we talk about hypostasis or person or um, sometimes entity, although that has some, some difficulties. Um, and what we're talking about is a concrete, real, actual example of something. So I have a glass on my desk um, that has a picture of John Calvin. You have a glass on your desk that doesn't have a picture of John Calvin. Why are you going to bring There's that something up? There's something about the glass that is shared between the two that both of us, independent of each other, could look at this and say, this is a glass. That's the substance. The fact that my glass is uh, something that's designed to hold 16 ounces, which might give you an idea of what I was drinking. The fact that yours uh, may be a different size or shape. Those are features of the hypostasis, not the substance. So So those are really important terms. Right. So how does the, the usia fit into that? And by the way... I just had this thought that does that not sound like a fragrance for men? Like it does. by Calvin Klein. He, I like how Matt Butts pronounces it. I did a, a show for him. Uh, <laughs> how where does he say I, it? He says Uja. <laughs> Uja. Roll Tide Uja. Um, so the, the oh, Uzia so or the nature, I'm going to stick with English terms from now on. The nature is a single, I'm going to say substance. The substance is a single shared indivisible substance that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit share, right? There's one substance. That's why we're monotheists is not because, um, is because there's one substance that there are three persons who share. Um, You and I as creatures, however, we have our own individual substances. So we have what's called a generic substance where we both have the same kind of substance, but it's a, a separate substance. I can never be unified with you in substance, right? There's no way that that can happen. Um, The closest thing that happens, ironically, but the closest thing that happens is a man and a wife, right? Right. That's the closest we ever get to um, two persons sharing a substance. I suppose if you want to get technical, um, during the first nine months of a, of a baby's existence in the womb, that's pretty close to sharing a substance too. But neither one of those is actually sharing a substance. The second that um, a baby is conceived, it has its own unique, completely, utterly distinct substance. You can kind of think of it as like a DNA. It's right. own DNA, its own substance. 
So in the Trinity, there's a single substance. And uh, the reason that this gets important, and we'll get into this passage here, the reason this is important is because two persons sharing a substance is completely different than two persons with two substances. So, so different that you can't even really compare them to each other. There's no continuity there. We have no experience, no direct experience with a single substance being shared by multiple persons. We don't even know. We don't even really know what that means except to say those words. That's the furthest we can get to describe that. Exactly. That's the level 100 idea right there. We can't even conceive of it. So the reason that that's applicable and important for this passage is when you get to verse three, this is where the EFS advocate goes and they say, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. And they look and say, see, the son submits to the father. Well, this passage is an analogy, right? It's a chain of analogies. We have the first analogy is the head of every man is Christ. The second analogy in the chain is the head of a wife is her husband. And the third analogy is the head of Christ is God. Well, if you remember a few seconds ago, which I hope you do, if not seek medical attention, but if you remember a few seconds ago, I said, there's no way to compare two persons with one nature to two persons with two natures. You can't make that comparison. Right. Right. And in a light, in a similar way, you can't compare two persons with one will to two persons with two wills. So when we have this chain of analogies, we have the first one head of every man is Christ, right? There's a man and there's Christ. Even if we're talking about the son, according to divine nature, which I'll explain why we're not. But even if we were, you have one person or two persons, two natures, human person, divine person, human nature, divine nature, human will, divine will. Then we go to the next chain, next in the chain, the head of a wife is her husband, wife, husband, human person, human person, human nature, human nature, human will, human will, two persons, two wills. Then we get to the third one and it says the head of Christ is God. Now, if, if we're talking about the son, according to his divine nature, we're no longer talking about two persons with two wills. So we've just destroyed the continuity of the chain. So the analogy makes no sense. It doesn't tell us anything about the first two realities. If the third is about Christ as a Christ as God, according to his divine nature and the father. So either Paul is writing this analogy and then not telling us anything. It's a meaningless. It's not a meaningless statement. It's just a statement that we can't comprehend the meaning. It becomes illogical. Right. It would be like if, if you said, how hard is, um, how hard is your bed? And I said, man, oh man, um, purple. Right. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Like there's no point of continuity between purple and hardness. Right. If I instead, you said, how hard is your bed? I said, well, my bed is hard as a feather. Well, it's a weird analogy, but it still works because a feather is soft and soft is a kind, is a, is a measurement of hardness. Even more strong would be if you said, well, how hard is your bed? I said, man, my heart, my bed is hard as a rock. Those analogies only work because of the points of continuity. So with the head is of Christ is God. He, we have to be talking about Christ according to human nature here in order for there to be any point of continuity with the previous two pairs. So we know that because the analogy doesn't work. But even more than that, on a more fundamental exegetical level, the word Christ in the scriptures does not always refer to the incarnate Christ, but it always refers to the economic activity of the son in relation to creation. Right, right. Always. So the only place that I'm aware of where the word Christ is used of 
um, the son prior to the incarnation is where Moses calls the rock that followed that apparently followed Israel through the desert, but the rock that the water came from. He says that rock was Christ. And so even though he's making a, it, that is, I don't think he really thought that the rock was like the second person, the Trinity incarnated as a rock, but he's making that comparison. He's still talking about the economic activity of the sun. So we can't use this passage to push back into the ontological Trinity, which is exactly what the EFS person wants to do. They want to say the head of the sun is God eternally past, but that just doesn't make sense of the passage. Right. This is a case, once again, where the passage to, I guess, the EFS advocate's benefit is trying to be plain spoken. So it's definitely saying God occupies the first place. Christ holds the second place. But how is that so? And if you take it illogically, like you just explained, and you break up the chain in the metaphor, that's the only way you can end up with an end result that says, well, this is referring to some kind of ontological, like eternal uh, position. But how is that possible otherwise? Well, if you just follow the chain... It's possible in so much as Jesus has in our flesh made himself subject to the Father, but still being in one essence with the Father, he is his equal. So we have to bear that in mind. So we can say he's inferior to the Father in so much as he has assumed our nature. So as Paul would say elsewhere, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Like like that's the whole point. But to, to break up, I like kind of how you said it, because even if you just look at that logically, If you go backwards and start at the end of the chain and work your way forwards, understanding the link in each of the kind of causal relationships there, you should understand, well, that can't be what he's saying. He's not supporting an EFS position there at all. It just doesn't make logical sense. But then in terms of its theological implications and underpinnings, or even its spiritual outworkings, it also deviates from the text altogether. It deviates from like the full counsel of God in terms of understanding what Jesus has accomplished, how he accomplished that, and what it means that in his humanity he was inferior to the Father rather than in his assumed, or rather than like in his divine nature. Yeah, and even if you, um, even if you don't buy the argument that I'm that it's breaking up the analogy, if you look at that and go, well, that just doesn't work for whatever reason. The phrase "the head of Christ is God" is there to be an example to give us an example of how the the husband is to be the head of wife and how yeah, the wife is right. to be under the husband as her head. Now, we don't really know in a bare sense what it would mean for the son or for the the father to be the head of of the son apart from his human nature. So, the the practical outflow of this passage is completely lost. If instead Paul is talking about the son as he acts in his office of mediator in the incarnation, then we have that example front and center. Exactly. Right. We see right in front of us exactly how Christ submitted to the Father. He gave himself at the Father's will. He he lived to do the Father's will. He lived to submit himself to the Father. He loved the Father. And so in the same way, or in an, an analogous way, the wife is to submit herself to her husband. She's to love her husband. She's to be obedient, not in the sort of authoritarian sense, but it's to be obedient to her husband in the household. She is to um, she is to serve her husband and submit to her husband. But likewise, the father, how many times in scripture do we see the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, right? He, he loves the son and he has a covenant relationship with the son according to 
his humanity. And that covenant relationship includes caring for him and providing for him. The, the son had nowhere to lay his head, but he never went without what the father had for him. And so we see that a wife is to trust her husband to provide, even when it doesn't always seem like he's going to. Now, that can be abused, right? Husbands can be irresponsible, but at the end of the day, the wife is to trust her husband and that he is going to take care of her needs to the best as he can. So we have to, we have, when we read scripture, the scripture has to make sense. It has to have a point. It has to have right. some sort of um, some sort of application. And if we're talking about the son, according to his divinity in the end of first three, there is no application. Right. It's just like, exactly. here's, here's two comparisons and then a random fact that doesn't tell you anything. Right. And that just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense of the scripture. Yeah. When the EFS takes this position using the scripture, they just cut the legs out from underneath the text on this. Exactly. Which is really a shame. And so it, we have to move beyond the point. And that's, I think, our whole goal in kind of reaffirming this and coming back to this conversation to kind of close this up by saying, like, this stuff does matter. And so it, it's not just egg-headed. We have to think of it beyond just, you know, kind of the nuances of the language and the theological implications on kind of like this armchair theology way, but how this, this passage should push us and propel us into relationships, especially with our spouses, but for that matter, with everybody else, and especially those in the church, in such a way that we are actively undertaking to follow in the example that Jesus Christ has set for us, especially understanding that he has redeemed our wills and that that day is coming when there will be the perfection of the will that at the same time unites us to God by the work of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and yet in some way maintains our own individual separate personality of will. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing that we can only get from interpreting this stuff rightly. Yeah. So uh, in in closing, I wanted to call out one thing that's going on, right? So Jesse and I are recording this. It is 6.02 p.m. on Sunday, August 13th. And on Friday uh, morning previous, um, a group of white nationalists, um, some people who are identifying as neo-Nazi skinheads, um, as well as people from Black Lives Matter, um, a group called Antifa and some other groups kind of descended on this town in Virginia called Charlottesville. And the reason that I bring this up is we ended the last episode of the EFS discussion. We ended that by talking about how this theology is being used more or less to abuse women. Now, Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware, I don't have any reason to think that they're doing that, but the same theology is being used to put women in a place of oppression that is not biblical. And the reason that I see a connection here is there's a um, there's a virulent strain uh, that has come out of Reformed theology historically called kinism. And you'll hear the word kin as in like family. Um, and, and kinism is a theology that wants to say that God created nations and that these nations and races are equal but are to be distinct. They're equal but they're to be separated from each other. And that within those nations... Some nations are to be authorities over other nations, and some are to be submissive. And I will give you one guess as to which kind of person made this theology and which kind of person thinks that their nations are supposed to be on top. Now, I want to be clear. Jesse and I are um, middle class, educated, uh, in the scheme of the world, affluent uh, white men. Right. So we're not the people to make extensive conversations about race. Probably not ever. Certainly not now. But the fact is that what I just described about kinism, 
what I described about white nationalism, that, well, whites and blacks are different. There's one that's better than the other, but whites are supposed to be in charge and blacks are not, right? That's a tenant that you see in a lot of white nationalist groups. That's exactly the same logic that is applied by the EFS advocate. Men and women are different, but they're also equal. But because of their differences, men are supposed to be in charge of women. Right. Same logic. So we have to recognize that rooting our understanding of the difference between persons in anything besides individual circumstances, it, it is dangerous, right? It is absolutely vile and sinful and dangerous. And um, if you have ever thought, all of us, um, whether you're white or black or any other race, all of us have had sinful thoughts. Many of us have had sinful thoughts that involved racism. It's, it's so ingrained in the fabric of our history as a nation that if you live in the United States, it's impossible to get away from. On your best day, you recognize it and you, you consciously fight against it. But this theology of the eternal functional subordination and how it is being used to uh, emphasize the natural differences between men and women and the roles that men and women are then sorted into because of those natural differences, it's only one step further in terms of uh, distinction to then apply that logic to the difference between blacks and whites. So um, this is important stuff. It's dangerous theology. I I don't want to um, give an inordinate amount of time. So I don't think maybe we will, but I don't think we're going to do another follow-up episode on this unless some new development happens. Um, But please, please, please don't use the trinity to support differences between human persons just don't do it it's dangerous it's vile it's blasphemy it's every every terrible thing you can imagine in terms of interactions with people can can flow out of that uh, aberrant theology and that's the point right because what we often need to recognize and remember is that long before violent situations like what occurred in charlottesville happen they're underpinned by really either menacing theology or bad philosophical ideas. And so that's the thing that actually creates the powder keg before it's lit. It's not just that all the people got decided to get together and said, wouldn't it be interesting for us to exercise this kind of moral opinion or idea? And it shows that we, and and this has been convicting for me, even just thinking about this event, talking to people about it, because again, I'm, I'm certainly not qualified. The only thing I'm qualified to understand, quite honestly, is that that penchant for sin, that penchant to resist the Imago Dei in my neighbor is really prevalent in my own life. And apart from God, explaining that to me, working on me in that by the power of the Holy Spirit through sanctification and relationships and in good, solid theology that comes from the scriptures, that is the only thing, apart from his regeneration, that's going to save me from falling into those same bad ideas, which will result at some point in the same kind of violent behavior. So that's the only thing I'm really qualified to say about that. Yep, absolutely. Well, on that note... (laughs) I don't, I don't know where we go from there. We, we love to end it cheery, but if, if that's something like <laughs> you're thinking about and you want to get in on this conversation, what are like a couple of ways that people can reach out to us? Like they did this, this last week, Tony, which was great. What are some ways people can get in touch with us? Sure. Absolutely. So you can email us at reformedbrotherhood at gmail.com. Uh, it's a great place to send us longer questions. You can tweet at us at reformbrohood. Uh, you could find our Facebook page and send us a message there. You can find that on Facebook, Reform Brotherhood. Um, or you can call us at 607-444-2767. Bros. 
um, and we would love to take your voicemails. Uh, if you call, please be aware that Google transcription is hilarious. <laughs> and in addition to playing your voicemail, we probably will read the ridiculous transcription, which gave us such great things as the eternal or the turtle functional support nation. Yes, that was instead great. of eternal we, functional subordination. We decided so, that because that makes about as much sense as you've probably gleaned at this point as the actual EFS position. We're just going to start calling it turtle exactly. functional support. What was it? Support Nation or support? Turtle Functional Support Nation? Yeah, Turtle Functional Support Nation. I like that much, much better. Yes. Yeah. Please. Call so that's it that how you get a hold kind of, of us. Scholarly papers you're writing. Turtle exactly. Functional Support Nation. Yeah. T F S N. Um, and in addition, we didn't read any this week because we had a packed topic, but we are still seeing awesome uses of the hashtag I am reformed. So we're going to keep reading them. We just didn't get to it tonight, but keep on at it. Um, I search for those on a daily basis Me and too. I love to see them. They're super encouraging. Um, it's, it's starting to take off. So keep them coming. Me too. Well, this has been great, Tony. Thanks for letting us go back to a little EFS action. I think this has been helpful for me. I love chatting about this with you. Yes. And Jesse yeah. next time, episode 50. 50 big five oh 50 and we are not going to tell you yet but we have a special event planned for episode 50 oh yeah so uh make sure you don't miss it but until next time honor everyone love the brotherhood uh, what if i'm fine?